1: Thank you for joining us today for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. we got a studio full of really terrific experts to talk about the political news of the day, and we'll do that in just a moment. I want to start, though, by reminding you that we're on Facebook Live. Just come to the Facebook uh, the GPB news page on Facebook. You'll find us there. We love it when you leave comments on Facebook. You can join a always growing community of people who gather together to watch the show and talk to each other and we really always enjoy watching reading what you have to say you can also follow us at twitter and leave your comments there just tweet us at politics gpb all right um with us today the editor of the atlanta journal constitution the boss himself mr kevin riley hi kevin always good to be here bill thanks uh you we were talking thanksgiving uh you had a great thanksgiving with family back home in the midwest no you were in south carolina
2: in south carolina but yeah had a great thanksgiving uh and uh but it's good
1: to be back Yeah. well kevin riley an ohio state man watched ohio state (laughs) dismantle michigan it was it was a oh my gosh it was brutal kevin
2: Yeah, now all we have to do is handle Northwestern this weekend and and get these voters to see the light. I I grew
1: up right next door to Northwestern University, so I'll be on the other side of of that game for you, Kevin. Uh, We're also joined today by Dr. Andre Gillespie. She, of course, teaches political science at Emory University. We're glad to have you back. You were up. In the east, you were up east for the holidays. Yeah, I was uh... in Philadelphia. Okay, great. And right next to you, uh, Amy Steigerwald, who teaches political science at Georgia State University. You had the whole clan here in town, right?
0: Yeah, everybody comes to us because they do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> who does the dishes? They all come to my house, too, and I get stuck with the dishes.
0: I, my family helps out a lot, oh, but good. we moved here and my mom decreed, we're only coming to your house now, and I said, okay. okay.
1: <laughs> All right. And uh, Jackie Gingrich-Cushman is back with us today. Happy to have you here, Jackie.
3: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: I was reading, I was looking at one of your columns, a couple of your columns on Medium. That's where I get to. I Actually, I just put in Jackie Cushman columns or blogs, right. and I either get to your website, JackieCushman.com, mm-hmm. or right. it brings up Medium where we can find what you've written. Yeah,
3: it's available on several different places. I'm usually pretty easy to find on the Internet.
1: Yeah, you are. <laughs> Jackie Cushman, uh, a conservative commentator, uh, daughter of uh, Newt Gingrich, who is now married to the U.S. ambassador to the Vatican. That
3: is correct. And, and she got to go on Thanksgiving Day and read the uh, the proclamation from the president. So wow. they had great fun.
1: Wow. OK. All right. Let's get down to it. We have... Uh, Some breaking news. Late this morning, you'll you'll recall that when Stacey Abrams finally conceded, when she determined, her campaign determined, that they'd counted as many votes as they were going to be able to get counted in this last election, she reluctantly conceded. She said, I'm not conceding, but I am acknowledging that I'm not going to win this race. And she said immediately that, that her organization or an organization she was uh, starting up would be looking at filing a federal lawsuit that would ask the court to review the entire election machinery and process of voting in georgia and ask the court to order that changes be made in the way voting takes place here the way registration takes place here purges of voter files take place The point of all that is to say the lawsuit was filed this morning. We're not going to get into it in depth today because we're still waiting to get more of the details from the uh, uh, Abrams folks. But it is worth pointing out, Kevin, that although Abrams now says, look, I'm not challenging the results at this point. I'm not suggesting that Brian Kemp won't be governor. He will. But we want the court to take action in future elections. Yeah, it looks like they've made this
2: decision to go at it from the court's point of view as opposed to trying to find some other way to go at the laws. But uh, so it'll be yeah. interesting to see just how far they can push it and how long it will take. Yeah, under, I'm
1: not sure. Other than the court action, they're not they're they're unlikely to be able to go to the Republican-controlled legislature and, and ask for them to change the statutes. So the federal court seems to be the one way they can move forward.
4: Well, I mean, it's going to probably be a two-pronged approach. So there will be legislation introduced. How far it gets, I don't know right. um, about that. But then they're also going to go the judicial route, um, you know, just to make sure that they can attack this. And I think the whole point is that they're trying to attack structures and practices, as opposed to litigating individual races.
1: Which is interesting. Jackie, if Abrams does want to preserve her political future, she does, I think, clearly want to have a future in elective politics. And the fact that she now uncouples completely uh, the notion of challenging whether she lost the election fairly or not, she would contend she didn't. But the fact that she has said quite clearly I am not challenging whether Brian Kemp is going to be governor. I'd like to see the systems change is probably a pretty smart approach uh, because you're not going to challenge the election. But more important, it does to some extent preserve uh, your political future. You won't be looked at as the sore loser out there by a lot of people.
3: Uh, well, Stacey Abrams has a very bright future. She's very smart. She worked very hard. She's been working very hard for years. Um, I've actually been on this show with her um, in, in previous experiences. Um, but I think a couple of things. First of all, she clearly wants to be governor. The question is, does she you know, run against uh, Purdue in two years, or does she wait and see if, if Congressman Lewis maybe retires and, and she can stroll into that seat, no problem. Um, but in either event, she's she, I think she's set up, and the question is, does she really want to wait and become governor? She's young enough. She could actually wait all eight years and still run for governor while she's a congressman or depending on what happens. The easiest thing for her to do honestly would be to walk into Lewis's seat if he decided to retire because she could go on vacation. Um, But in terms of what your question is, Clearly for her, it's better to step back. And I think that's a fair question to talk about the structure of of the the rules that we have to vote, because to me, that's a very fair discussion for both sides to have. And I think that's a very good discussion to have out in the open, as opposed to conflating the current structure and rules with how it was carried out and everything else. And then you can't really sort through what's what. So I think if it's done properly, it could be a very healthy debate for both sides.
1: Yeah, we'll watch how that unfolds. And yes, there will be legislative action, but it'll presumably be brought by Democrats more likely than Republicans. Although it would be interesting to see if somebody decides that they want to take a bipartisan approach to looking ahead. Maybe that'll happen, but I do think the federal court's likely to be the first uh, course of action here. Amy, uh, it's interesting that Jackie talked about everything in 2020, except the one race that seems to loom largest on the horizon as a possible run for Stacey Abrams, which would be challenging David Perdue's Senate seat. He's up for re election in 2020.
0: Um, I think that's certainly, you know, something that she could do. I mean, it's sort of unclear who would be sort of at this moment, right, the other uh, Democratic challenger, right, that might be there to challenge Purdue. I mean, the issue is going to be, I think, whether or not Purdue, uh, if we start to see him, maybe if he, mm-hmm. is he going to keep going um, to the right or is he going to come back a little bit towards the middle to bring people back in, especially given these last uh, election results, which show a pretty a, a much more competitive state than there has been, uh, particularly in these statewide elections. No
2: one has been a bit- bigger supporter of Trump than David Perdue. So I think that will really be the question is, what is the president's status with the Georgia electorate when 2020 rolls around, right?
1: Yeah, I've been asking on this show since the election, and especially since we've learned just how many seats in the House Democrats picked up, It's up to 38 now. It could be 40 before it's over with. A little later in the show, we're going to talk about the raw numbers of people who voted and what that tells us. But I've been saying for some time, Andra, I wonder if this election is going to ring a bell for people like David Perdue, that they've got to be a little bit more cautious in assuming that their job will be to rubber stamp whatever the president wants.
4: Well, I'll defer to jackie on this a little bit, but my sense is nobody has changed their mind about anything since election day. Um, and so well, that's
1: dispiriting.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just it just is. So, I mean, Democrats, you know, make gains in the House, take control of the House. Republicans make gains in the Senate. Um, President Trump seems to think that he won. Um, and so I think everybody is back at their sides. And so because we are in a hyper polarized environment, I think people saw what they wanted to see in those elections. And I don't think anybody has been self reflective or circumspect enough to actually think about things that they might possibly do differently. Yeah. And forward. by the
1: way, Jag, what I meant by it's dispiriting is not just because Republicans, I mean, both sides just don't seem to want to be as, uh, as Andra talks about being ref- self-reflective right. learning lessons
3: So I, I've seen some of that actually um, with some of the um, politicians that I've talked to about the clearly I don't I mean obviously I don't, I don't talk to Trump I don't know you know I don't know Trump I, I don't see any uh, self-reflection from him but I can tell you from his perspective he actually got the best outcome to be perfectly frank to set him up for 2020. It's much better for him to have a, a Nancy Pelosi assuming she can um, keep herself in speakership which I think she will, uh, to have as a foil for the next two years than to actually have Republican House and Republican Senate. He can't say that publicly and he may not have even thought about it. I'm just giving you my perspective. That's I think it's the best setup for him personally. He controls the Senate. So even if something does happen in the House, he can stop in the Senate. All right. Well, um, so, but, but I do wish now, you know, and I'm glad to talk about it at length. I wish that, I wish at least on the Republican side that they would stop and reflect, because I think there is a lot to be learned, especially here in Georgia. Um, that if they've learned it properly, I, I think we're actually going through, and this is a longer discussion, we cannot be quite, I'm sorry, Bill, but I think we are, as a party for Republicans, I think we're going through a resorting of who we are. And I think if we do it properly, it could be it could be great for Republicans and quite frankly great for the country. I think if we do it terribly, I think it can be awful for both. So I think we're in the middle of this very long resorting process um, that we're not we're just trying to get our arms around right now.
1: All right, we're going to watch how that unfolds, uh, it, uh, it, and we'll certainly be talking about that a lot in the months ahead, and especially as we move into the heart of the 2020 election cycle. Uh, I just do want to finish up by saying. I suggested Stacey Abrams might be a candidate, of course, in 2020 for the Senate race. But, Kevin, she's not going to have the field to herself. I mean, there are, any, there are at least a few other candidates out there, potential candidates, people who have been eyeing that seat for a while. It's going to be interesting to see who actually comes forward.
2: Yeah, I think there's a chan- that uh, a good chance that Democrats will have that problem with people coming out of the woodwork, yeah. but uh, we'll see what happens.
1: All right, let's um, let's move on to uh, races that are still underway right now. We actually uh, were uh, partnered with the Atlanta Press Club as we do in all of our debates this morning, and had two debates: one for the PSC runoff. Uh, between uh, uh, Lindy Miller and uh, uh, Chuck Eaton, and we, we can talk about that in a few minutes. But we also had, a, presumably we're going to have a race, in the, uh, a runoff debate in the uh, Secretary of State's race between Brad Raffensperger, the Republican, and John Barrow, the Democrat. Uh, Raffensperger sent word yesterday that he would not participate in the debate today. His campaign claims it was because the invitation to debate was sent to a minor figure, an intern, I I believe is what they've said, in the campaign, and they never got information about this. So Barrow had the stage to himself, and as is the press club's tradition, when a candidate backs out, the other candidate debates an empty podium. That secretary of state's race is turning into a very important uh, uh, runoff. Who
2: would have thought that we we would be focused on the Secretary of State's race uh, in Georgia. I mean, it turns out <laughs> used to be a huge deal, right? And it's good. I think it's good for the state. It's good for politics in the state. It's good for voter awareness in the state to realize what an important office that is and will be certainly over the next few years. Don't you agree, I mean,
4: Well, I think the moment that Brian Kemp decided not to resign his seat, that race became particularly important. And I think given all the allegations of voter suppression that were bandied about um. You know, on both sides. So it's not just Democrats making allegations about Kemp, you know, putting his thumb on the elections. I mean, there's also, you know, that allegation of Democrats allegedly hacking, you know, the secretary of state's office, looking at the voter files. This office is incredibly important and it's become important. And I think for anybody who cares anything about voting rights and how elections are monitored, regardless of what side you're on, like you have to participate in this race. Otherwise, you were just blowing hot air three weeks ago.
1: Yeah, Amy. It, it one of the one of the things among many things that a new secretary of state may have to look at is there's now a commission in, in place, a uh, task force essentially, to determine what. New voting machines, if any, Mm -hmm. the state ought to be looking at purchasing voting machines, presumably, which leave a paper trail, right?
0: Well, that's one of the things. So they're actually, as far as I understand, required by a a court order by the next electoral round to have voting machines that have some form of, of paper ballot. So it either needs to be only paper ballots and then they're kind of optically read or it could be a voting machine that then after you submit your ballot, it prints out a receipt that you can see and then those can be manually counted, but we're moving into an error uh, to try to make sure that there's some way to truly recount what the results are and have a backup, right? So that way you don't have, for example, concerns about when people say, oh, I hit this button, but it showed up as something else, right? This way you can see it and you can make sure that your ballot says what you wanted it to say, and then that's what would be counted in a manual recount.
1: So, um, Jackie, with all the attention focused on (laughs) The runoff. Well, let me say it a different way. We're focused on the runoffs. <laughs> we recognize, as Andra does, that both the PSC and the Secretary of State's runoff have great consequences. But are the voters focused? What kind of turnout? Uh, early voting started yesterday. At least in my county, there are now I think two or three locations, none of which is even vaguely convenient for my family and I to go to to vote early. Uh, by, you know, next week on December 4th, I'll be able to go to my usual polling place. But are we going to, what's going to happen to turnout in a runoff like this?
3: Well, I mean, I think traditionally turnout would, would go down, especially if you don't have anybody at the top two, right, levels. You don't have a governor, or lieutenant governor. You have no one to really bring in the people. I think there, there are two things that will um, determine turnout. Well, three things. One is weather. It's always weather, right? Um, the other one is, um, you know, there is a great, the, the Democratic Party has a great ground game. Um, in fact, I had a friend that ran into people. In South Georgia, um, who are literally on Election Day, we're literally picking up people in vans, going to Chick-fil-A, I mean, physically. And they are on the payroll, I mean, 365 days a year, all, all year long. They're, they're employees for an organization. So they have a really good ground game. So they will turn out voters. Uh, how many will actually show up when they get them? I don't know. But the third thing is, is now you have, which is, I think, fascinating, um yesterday. You know, Donald Trump waded into the race uh, and endorsed the, you know, secretary of state, you know, so.
1: Sent out a tweet, of course. Exactly.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) Yes, Through a tweet. I should have said I should have. (laughs) You're right. He tweeted it out. So so you also don't know what kind of uh, momentum that will generate as well. So I think, you know, I think we have a couple of different odd things happening and it's just it's really hard to tell. So, I mean, this is
4: all about turnout, especially when for are you know, a low incidence race like this. And so this is the type of race that only the most politically motivated and knowledgeable people tend to participate in. But you can always drive up turnout via mobilization. And so... Amy, I'm going to ask you this just because we're in the same tribe. You know, there are plenty (laughs) of studies about how canvassing works, how phone banking works and doesn't work, how leaving door hangers works, how text messages work. I haven't seen the Twitter study yet. So I'm not 100 percent sure. So from a persuasion standpoint, right, President Trump's tweets matter. But from a mobilization standpoint. I would say everything else suggests that the very passive ways to get people to turn out to vote actually are the least effective ways to drive up turnout. So if Raffensberger thinks that just the tweet from Trump is going to suffice, that's actually problematic because it really should be followed up with somebody knocking on your door, somebody giving you a personal phone call, somebody sending you a text message that's personalized to actually help you get out and vote. So just sort of the, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to sit back from afar and just like, you know, say this is my guy when we knew this already. I'm not quite sure how effective that Amy? is.
0: Well, I will say so. I- I haven't seen anything on Twitter per se yet but what I did, we did have a student actually who wrote a dissertation looking at Facebook and when people put up on right their Facebook page, note that I'm not on Facebook so I really don't know what I'm talking <laughs> about but if you put up on your Facebook page like I voted today everyone else go vote too and then your friend group is seeing that that, that actually does increase uh, turnout among those that <laughs> see it so it's sort of that, but that's a much more sort of almost like the door knocking Great. Right. It's a and social they... connection and a community connection, which I don't know if the tweet from Trump triggers that in the same way. Right. I mean, that seems like
4: I yeah. mean, I'm
1: thinking of the email that's studies that were
4: done 10, yeah. 15 years ago. And that sort of fits like S- exactly. whether or not that's the same.
1: I, I, I do think that's fascinating qu- uh, question. And who is the audience for Twitter to begin with? Amy, I think or Andra, both of you can mobilize students at your universities to undertake this study. Could you report back to us in phase <laughs> <laughs> before 2020? <laughs> yes
4: we'll see <laughs> <All right.
1: laughs> that's awesome see, Kevin, <laughs> do you think that's why so, didn't show up for the debate because well,
2: he, he thought the tweet would be enough uh,
1: uh, we don't know why uh, and, and his campaign has been uh, as I said they say that they didn't get the invitation until too late and they'd already put their schedule together but let me ask you before and you're well, well, welcome to weigh in on that Kevin but before we get there I saw Barrow for a couple minutes downstairs at our TV studios this morning. I'd kind of hoped that Raffensperger was going to end up coming anyway. He didn't. So I spent about five minutes talking to Barrow, and I asked John this question of what about turnout? Why are you going to, How are you going to mobilize your voters? There was a complaint that I thought was kind of interesting and important back when we were still unsure of some of these elections, the, the governor's race, the Abrams people pushing hard seven, eight, nine, ten days after the election, that the longer they dragged this out, the less opportunity there was for an organization to pivot and help the candidate who's still in the runoff, uh, Barrow. It took away from uh, his messaging, as it did from Raffensperger's, too. They both suffered. But Barrow believes that his turnout will be better than Raffensperger's because he thinks his voters are mad about the election and will turn out— Andre Great. Gillespie's already raised her Great. hand. She knows. She knows.
4: Well, I mean, it's not just anger. Like, you can't just coast on anger and assume that people are going to show up to vote. If you're not doing the hard work of actually, like, reminding people that there's an election, it's next Tuesday. The polls are going to be open from this time to this time. Here's the idea, you know, the IDs that are permissible to bring, right? You are actually, you know, if you win, you're lucky. Well, I'm and, assuming
1: that they do have – they are mobilizing people that that's an additional effort but he believes that people's frustration will uh, make them more likely to pay attention when a canvasser shows up. I, th- I think,
3: up it, I or- think it, may, it very well might, especially since the whole controversy about whether or not Kemp should remain in office and there's more visibility. I mean, eight years ago, no one would have even known who the secretary of state is. I mean, they have, who is that? But now they've. People have been talking about it. And I think because the, the the governor's election was so was so close, I do think you may find many people that just in some ways, um, you know, we see historically that very often the, during a off year for the presidential race that it, one or two of the um, legislative sides will swap. Right. So you have a divided government. Right. And that's this very standard what happens nationally. So I also think some ways and in, in, in this instance, you might find that some people might say, you know what, it'd be nice to have someone on the opposite side kind of, you know, keeping track at a state level as well, just to kind of hold people
4: accountable. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I mean, the the, the, the issue is, is that it's been really hard to find messages that actually will drive up turnout above other ones. So um, they tried at first, the empirical literature suggests that you can shame people into voting by saying, I'm following your voting. I'm, you know, and so like, I can tell you wh- whether or not you voted in these elections and that might spur you on, but it's actually been really difficult to, to find particular messages that are more effective than others in getting people out to vote. And so the, the academic takeaway has been we just need to tell you to vote. So let as long me. as we tell you to vote, that's most important. Kevin, <that
1: helps>. Kevin <laughs> I wanted to go back in, in terms of the secretary of state's race. Um, the big question during this campaign was whether or not Brian Kemp should resign or at the very least recuse himself from any involvement with the election process. And you asked uh, at the AJC, uh, I think you sent out a survey to Raffensperger and Uh, to Barrow saying, will you, if you run for another office or when you run for election, recuse yourself? What did you get back? Well,
2: what we did was we we asked both of them to write opinion pieces for our editorial page. And we asked them, you know, to go ahead and write what they plan to do if they were elected, but address directly the question of if they were to run for another office, would they resign as secretary of state? And uh, Barrow immediately, you know, said that, and we had a lot of back and forth with campaign. Barrow
1: immediately said he would step he w- down. He would. Yes. Okay.
2: And we had a lot of back and forth with Raffensperger's campaign before we, uh, before we got an answer. And his answer was, well, he doesn't plan to run for another office, so it's a moot point. But I got, I have to say this. I mean, when we were talking about him not showing up for the debate because the the email went to an intern or whatever it was, it sounded awful, awfully familiar because when we asked for those pieces, at first they, we didn't get one from Raffensperger and then he said, oh, we didn't get the email or we couldn't meet the deadline or we misunderstood the deadline. And to me, I mean, our editorial page Editor Andre Jackson was working on it, but I was like, "Well, if you're not thinking about this, and when the election is, what what is it you're you're thinking about?" You know, and so I don't, I don't. Maybe the, it's a staff thing, and maybe this is really what's going on. But to me, you know, being ready to answer that question if you're running for secretary of state seems like something. <laughs>
1: I don't know. What do you guys think? Wouldn't you ex- have uh, expected
2: that question? I didn't uh, think... Absolutely. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All
1: right. The rest of the table has spoken. Let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. And When we come back, we've got a lot more to talk about here in Georgia. And then we got a big election that we're watching in Mississippi. It's unfolding right now. We'll talk about that after this.
4: You know, it's something special when people across the globe come together to do one thing, give.
3: I'm Elsa Chang, and Giving Tuesday isn't just another day on the calendar. It's a movement where you do something extra special for your community. Take that step, get your give on today, and support public radio. Make an online contribution at gpb.org or 800-222-4788.
1: Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, As long as we're going to talk just for another couple minutes about the other big runoff uh, uh, race on the ballot next Tuesday, we'll talk about the PSC runoff. Before we do, let me point out to you that I said a few minutes ago that I was looking for where I could early vote if I wanted to. And it was kind of hard to find uh, a place I could vote. But if we have posted right now whether you can get to your voting place easily or not. If you go to the GPB news page, you'll find a link to uh, polling places around the state and uh, that are open for early voting. So check that out. And I think, Robert Jimison, you're going to. Tweet that message out or uh, put it up on our Facebook page. So you'll be able to check out your voting location at gpbnews.org. We do have this runoff race between incumbent Chuck Eaton, Andra, and uh, Democrat Lindy Miller. It's, It's interesting. Number one, they both essentially support the continuation of plant vogel it is we're not dealing with a race here in which chuck eaton who's been a supporter of finishing up construction on this multi-gazillion dollar project and lindy miller is opposed to it it it, it, in many ways this comes down to chuck eaton's position uh, is basically in the long run georgia power is going to have some right to recoup the costs with ratepayers, they'll have to come to the PSC with a proposal for that. And Lindy Miller is saying, I don't want Georgia Power to recoup these costs. I want to save consumers' money. That's one of the differences surrounding Plant Vogel between them, but there are others as well. Big question is do voters even pay attention to that sort of thing when it's a battle for public service commission?
4: Um, I would say that party probably is going to matter more than anything, and that's going to be the cue that people use. So given the polarization and given the anger that I think people, uh, you know, are feeling in this race, those who do show up to vote um, are probably going to vote straight ticket. So, you know, the, whatever party they vote for, for Secretary of State, likely going to be the party that they vote for um, for PSC.
1: Amy, you're nodding.
0: Yes, but- Andres totally correct on that one. I mean, I think for Public Service Commission, there's very few people that really understand the ins and outs on it. As you said, neither of them is suggesting shutting down Plant Vogel. They both want to continue with it, and so it's this sort of somewhat technical question about rate recruitment that a lot of people aren't going to understand. And again, to be perfectly blunt, if people are turning out, they're likely turning out more for the Secretary of State race and whichever side they're voting for there. They're then going to look to see whether there's a D or an Next to the name on the person running for Public Service Commission.
1: Jackie, these races, would you, how would you want to, would you want to be running one of these races right now, given how hard it is to encourage people to, as they say, party is, it seems to be everything. Do you agree? And is there a way to, if you're a consultant on this, to change that equation?
3: Well, I think, I think it does mean a lot. I have, I've got to say, though, for um, traditionally that is true. And I think probably that will probably end up. Being what what happens, but uh, for the first time, I've actually had several friends actually email me about the PSC race even before uh, the general election. Which is very odd because usually people don't even think about it. To your point, until they walk into the right the, the the booth and they look down and go, "Oh, what is that again?" And they don't even know what it is. So I think it's kind of interesting that there's even been some visibility, at least throughout my the, the group that I knew that I know. Um, and it's a person that you know she's been actually pretty active about recruiting people, and it's for, it's for and I'll say it's for Lindy Miller, but recruiting people to come and listen to her. And she's you know she's new and she's fresh and she's so I you know I don't know. I mean, more than likely, when people show up, they don't know what to do. Maybe they'll. Look at them and not vote if they're not sure. You never know. Um, But because it does happen as well.
1: Kevin, I wonder if the attention paid to plant Vogel and the cost overruns, the excessive billions of dollars that Georgia Power Southern Company are now putting into this plant, the delays in construction. I wonder if, to some extent, that's raised the profile at least a little bit. It's been in your newspaper a lot over the months uh, uh, that leading up to the election.
2: I think it has. And I don't think anybody wants to be waving the Plant Vogel uh, flag and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm behind this thing. I've always been behind this thing. I like this thing. It's just, it's just not a good thing. But here's an important thing we're ignoring, Bill, that we reported on our political blog today. Debbie Dooley. The co-founder of the Atlanta Tea Party has endorsed the Democrat, Lindy Miller, in this race. Uh, I mean, as as our writer put it, well, stranger things have happened, but we're not quite sure what.
0: And and that, (laughs) back to the discussion of sort of the Trump tweet, The Debbie Dooley endorsement probably is one that there's a lot of people will listen to, right? Because they're going to know more who she is. They may even know her, right? It's not just she's a member of the community. They're looking to her for guidance on what to do. And so that's a pretty big statement, honestly. And it's also going to get a lot of visibility because it is Mm -hmm.
4: counterintuitive.
1: Exactly. And and there's a reason for it, of course. Debbie Dooley has, of late, championed conservation causes, Mm -hmm. um, alternate energy, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. What's interesting— now. Eaton does have a plan, he will tell you, for uh, more solar power, more alternative energy sources. But how do you like that, the founder of a Tea Party endorsing a Democrat?
3: I think the other thing that that, uh, Lenny talks about that probably appeals to Debbie is that she talks about why weren't there, um, you know, when they originally did Tonight Vocal, why weren't there penalties in terms of if you didn't meet certain things and how you actually go back? I know it's a little more technical, but I do think that kind of approach and, you know, to be thoughtful when you do contracts so that we don't bear all the overruns as taxpayers. It's something that has to come out from somewhere else. I think that also appeals to Debbie because she's very, I mean, Tea Party is very much fiscally, right, conservative. And so you want to make sure that your money is spent
4: well. I mean, this is the same beef with Cobb County about, the brave stadium exactly. um you know like they, they were in opposition to it because they were like there were secret deals and there's all this extra money that's going to be spent and i'm not trying to pay for that so yeah. i mean you know it makes perfect sense that she would do this
1: all right uh again that election takes place next tuesday and we'll be on the air that day and the following day to assess how things are turning out and again go to gpbnews.org if you want, want to find out where you can vote this week to cast your ballot ahead of actual election day kevin riley Wouldn't you like to be in Mississippi today as a journalist? (laughs) Mike Espy, the Democratic challenger against Cindy Hyde-Smith, the appointed incumbent member of the United States Senate, their former agriculture and commerce uh, commissioner, now in a tooth and nail battle with uh, Mike Espy. Wouldn't you like to be there for this?
2: I think, uh, Bill, I'm just too tired out after this (laughs) 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 but uh it's an incredible um uh situation when when you look at it it really is and it's not like Espy, you know, despite what she has done, it's not like Espy is sort of the most uh, angelic character that you would, you know, you would look to run either. Right. He's he's sort of been involved in some things that you wouldn't you would not feel great about. But I mean, the latest stuff I've looked at, no one seems to think that he could actually win unless something crazy happens. Well, I don't are, know
1: how we feel in here. Well, that, I mean, for a Democrat to win a Senate seat in Mississippi would be a staggering uh, uh, event. But, uh, you know. I think this is worth our while here in Georgia because it's a southern race in which race, Andra, has played an enormous role. Cindy Hyde Smith talking about uh, she'd accept an invitation from a guy who was campaigning with her if it was to sit in the front row at a hanging. She claimed she didn't intend anything that related to the notion of lynching. Uh, but then we learn about her participation, her sending her kid to a, essentially a segregated academy, those schools that were set up to avoid uh, integration after the 54 Board v. Board of Education decision, Brown v. Board of Education decision. So like a lot of Southern races, more than any other in the country, honor, race has played the major role.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, race was playing the role because voting in Mississippi is extremely racially polarized. So, I mean, even more so than it is here. So we know Mm African-Americans nationally vote 90 percent Democratic. Um, We know that the majority of whites vote Republican in this country, but not to the same degree nationally as it is in Mississippi. And so, you know, we expect that it's racial polarization. And given sort of the historical antecedents about why blacks are Democrats and why Southern whites became Republican um, over time, right, we can't ignore that those things, that those, that those undercurrents aren't always there. Um, if we look at um, how Espy performed in the uh, first election— he basically got the African-American vote and then he got a small percentage of non-black votes. And so it's a question of whether or not he can top that. So he said this morning, heard this um, on CNN, that, well, I win either way. And so I think he thinks he's going to actually overperform what one would expect a Democrat to do in the state, given the controversy around Hyde-Smith. And so I think he is running to help set up the fact that you can have a, a candidate of his caliber with the type of national profile that he has, regardless of how checkered it might be, um, yeah. <laughs> and actually be able to be a, a, a viable candidate, um, you know, because there's always been a problem. in mean, Mississippi actually has had, you know, the greatest percentage of state representatives who are African-American, but they never seem to have political power because it was just dwarfed by the number of white Republicans in the state. And so I think this is the type of thing that might actually embolden, you know, a state legislator or, you know, a mayor in the Delta to, you know, be, be taken seriously as a candidate. I, I'm
1: glad you said that because to me- me, you can uh, you can put a, a, a circle around Mississippi's Senate race if he does overperform, and Georgia's governor's race. Uh, Stacey Abrams may have lost the race, uh, but she seemed to prove that that the South may be changing, Georgia may be changing, that a Democrat who runs on a more liberal record, let alone an African-American Democrat who runs on a liberal record, can come that close to winning here, and if Espy overperforms there, Jackie, these states are turning Democrat right in front of your eyes.
3: No, no, no I wanted to say that I think I think you've taken two different... I mean, I know we're both in the South. I, I, I realize that. Um, but, but these candidates are very different candidates. I mean, Mike Espy is... He is a Bill Clinton Democrat. Mm-hmm. He is he's actually much more, con- much, 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 much more conservative than Stacey Abrams is. Right. His policies are very are, are very moderate to be perfectly frank. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at him, he's a he's a very moderate candidate. He's quite frankly, if he ha- didn't have the issues um, with the indictments um, and the, the seven hundred fifty thousand dollars from the Ivory Coast guy, who's didn't he didn't realize was a bad guy. My, he's actually a very, very good candidate. Um, that I think could be, but those two things, you know. But so I think if I think just to say that if they're all the same, I think is really to make it too wait, simplistic.
1: Wait, wait. Are you suggesting that two African American candidates in Southern states can come within a hair's breadth of winning statewide in those states? That you don't see a similarity in the way the states are revolving?
3: no no because i think because i think you you put everything on race and i think i think we're more no, no. I really, uh, th- that's the way that's the way it sounds to okay. me maybe okay. that's not your intention but that's the way it comes across okay. and i think they're two they're very different candidates if you look what they stand for in the platforms that they're with they and i think quite frankly sta- i don't think i mean to be quite frank i don't think brian kemp i mean he talked about she was too extreme and she was too this and she wasn't for georgia i personally don't think he did a good job explaining to the electorate how 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 Quite frankly, nuts for Georgia she is. I mean, she's for our for our for what we believe in Georgia. Her policies are far left, right, I and I don't think he did a good, I don't think he did a good job with that. I,
1: I don't want to relitigate the Georgia uh, governor's race, but I understand what your point is. But Amy, <laughs> let me come back to you on this, and I know you all want to jump in. L- let's just set the terms of what we uh, have in terms of the electorate right now in Mississippi. It has the largest number percentage of eligible African-American voters of any state in the country. 38 percent. 36 are actually registered. Okay. Um, My understanding is that for Espy to win that race, he would not only have to essentially win, run the table on all of those registered voters, but then pick up a good 10-plus percent of the white vote, and that in Mississippi is a really tough challenge for uh, an an SB.
0: I think that's true. I mean, so I've actually seen more predictions that suggest that SB would need actually more like 20 to 25 percent of the white vote, like that high. Okay. Um, And I think so. I, I actually think one of the things that's interesting is I was sort of thinking about this, that Given the sort of recent stories that have come out about Cindy Hyde Smith, that there's a bit of parallels with the Roy Moore campaign in Alabama, right, where you again had very conservative, all of a sudden uh, issues come out. Of course, there was more about potential pedophilia, but there were sort of issues come out. But one of the differences that we've also seen in these two elections, um, right, they both had Trump support, they both had the White House backing, but there were a lot of prominent Republicans both in Alabama. And without that said, Roy Moore is no good, right? This don't vote for him, vote for someone else. That isn't happening in this race. Um, In fact, I went and looked this morning and I couldn't find any Republican member of Congress, member of the Senate, et cetera, definitely nobody in Mississippi who is saying that there's of concern, right? Instead, there is sort of strong backing behind Cindy Hyde-Smith. And so I think that also does play out. I mean, on some level, right, you've got to, if if you don't have, right, a group who is also saying, like, look, don't vote this way, right? Here's of concern. This person maybe is not the best for Mississippi. And so we need to put, you know, as they say, country over party. And we're not seeing those same sort of calls going on in the Mississippi race that we saw in the Alabama race.
1: Okay. Andra, you want to jump in?
0: I mean, you know, this is going to sound really crass. Um, I don't think
4: garden-variety racism is actually more problematic than child molestation allegations. And so in that instance, what Hyde-Smith has done in the minds of some voters isn't going to be so egregious as to disqualify yeah, her from yeah. office. It doesn't mean that there aren't issues with respect to this. It doesn't mean—I think the big question is could it depress turnout? But I think mm-hmm. the hard thing to try to figure out is how— to model or how to predict sort of who's a likely voter in an election that's happening right after Thanksgiving. Um, And we got to talk about the timing of that race. People do time elections for the purpose of trying to shape an electorate in their ways. And I think we need to look at this type of election as being suppressive, not necessarily always about blacks, but who who plans an election like right after Um, Thanksgiving? Like, that's just a crazy idea. And that means you actually don't want everybody to show up to vote. And so because we can't predict who actually is going to show up to vote, it's going to be really hard. Um, And if there turns out to be a surprise, it just means that the Democrats in Mississippi um, did a much better job at GOTV than Republicans did. So I
1: think it's I agree with this notion that that. we're not talking about another Roy Moore and Cindy Hyde Smith, but Kevin. Republicans uh, here in Georgia, insiders that we talk to, and across the South have all been quite clear. Uh, quietly about what a lousy candidate Cindy Hyde-Smith is. She came out of nowhere. (laughs) There are many Republicans who say, why did she end up becoming the candidate in this race? And the way she has responded or not responded to the hanging comment that she made, I think tells us a lot about how unready for prime time she is. Uh, But, you know, we'll see if it has any impact at all. I thought, Andre, Andre, your comment about, you know, what what really trumps what in this is pretty fascinating, Kevin. Right.
2: I mean, I, I think that Andre's got a good point. It just for a certain segment of voters, it could work for her. And then the president has been there and the president is supporting her and. Uh, you know, the Republicans might be wishing they'd pick someone else for that job. But, but they're stuck. But they, that's, <laughs> that, that's who they got. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. and,
3: and, and it has become, to your point, basically a national race, because at this point, you know, everything else is set in the Senate. You know, there's a, a small majority for Republicans. But. You yeah, know, this really is much
0: more about who holds. That's right. right. The, Republicans, the Republicans exactly. either control so one different.
1: seat or two, depending yeah. on how this. But I right. might
0: also be right just in the sense of the suppression, because it may be that what it does is just cause people not to turn out quite as much as they might have, because not that they would vote for Espy, but they're not sure they want to vote for Hyde Smith. And also, as you said, the timing is terrible, right? If anyone in Mississippi traveled to uh, I, uh, Chicago, they're yeah. not going to be voting today.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, we got to give you the last word on this segment because I'm really late getting to a break. And Tyler Morris, our engineer, is looking at me like, get the darn break (laughs) in. Here it comes, Tyler. (laughs)
0: On the next Fresh Air, climbing a sheer vertical rock thousands of feet high, using little cracks and edges of the wall to hold on to and balance your body weight. We talk with Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgerson about their historic free climb on El Capitan's notorious Dawn Wall in Yosemite. It's the subject of a new documentary. Join us.
2: Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and
1: gpbnews.org.
0: Hey, this is
3: Guy Raz. Today, a lot of social media posts are including the hashtag GivingTuesday. The cool thing about hashtag is it connects all these messages all over the world, which is perfect, because Giving Tuesday is all about coming together to support organizations that make a difference. So please give back to a nonprofit you care about, like this public radio station. Go to gpb.org to make your contribution, or call 800-222-4788. And thanks.
1: Welcome back to Rewind. Uh, Amy, believe it or not, and you already know this, we're still counting ballots in the November 6th election across the country. They're still coming in slowly, but surely. And the total number of votes cast so far has been kind of astonishing Mm -hmm. to watch. Uh, So when we look at aggregate numbers, uh, let's talk about them a little bit. And I'll start it off by pointing out that in 2016... President Trump, who did not win the popular vote, we know, won 63 million votes, right? For president, this year, so far, Democratic House candidates across the country have essentially received 59 million votes. And remaining votes that are out there are mostly in California, where they expect them to be overwhelmingly Democratic. Democrats are running some eight points ahead of Republicans in races across the country. Is that meaningful?
0: I think it is, right? The other thing that happened this morning is that in the four, like the last outstanding uh, California House race, the Democrat has now taken the lead. And so the AP has now called back uh, their win for the Republican in that one. And I think we're continuing to see that in. Um, David Wasserman at Redistrict had some really interesting stats up this morning talking about what it looks like of who is now being sort of represented by what party and the amounts. And I think that that is the part that's interesting. So House Democrats are are going to be representing um, the vast majority of. Uh, minorities in the country, Asians, Latinos, African Americans, Asians. Uh, They're also representing the vast majority of those with college degrees, those that are in urban areas, those that are in suburban areas. And one of, I think, the most striking features is that what they aren't representing, though, is a lot of the landmass of the country. And so I think what we're seeing is this big shift of people to cities, right? We've all been seeing that. We see this in Atlanta, certainly, right? Lots of people moving back in, even people that had gone out right we have less of the exurbs and more of the suburbs and people coming back into the cities and so that's really sort of concentrating where a lot of the political votes are in ways that don't necessarily translate into house seats or may even more importantly uh state legislative seats
1: interesting andra what's your take when you see these numbers
0: um
4: I, i i agree with amy i The thing that I would sort of caution with respect to this, I mean, I think we can look at Georgia as a microcosm. So if we're going to take this, you know, now we have the urban suburban alliance and we have the ex-urban rural alliance. Right. You know, the general sort of rule of thumb in in Georgia is there's Atlanta and the rest of the state. And so, you know, the other the non-metro Atlanta part of the state is about half the state. So the question then becomes with population changes, if these shifts continue, we're going to see the rate of growth in the urban suburban parts of the state and perhaps the country increase at a faster rate than we'll see in these rural areas. And so while it might not affect at large races for congressional seats in small states, you know, in the middle part of the country, it does actually have implications for states like this as well. Um, And so um, I think we have to sort of still figure out a way to talk to each other and people who are pinning all of their hopes on an urban or a rural mm-hmm. ex-urban strategy. Yeah, that might work for the next couple of political cycles, but that's actually not a good long-term well, strategy. Well, and
1: I think that's a great mm-hmm. uh, t- segue, uh, Jackie. This is precisely what uh, Governor-elect Kemp's challenge is going to be mm-hmm. as he moves into governing. He won enormous uh, uh, vote totals in rural Georgia. He, he, he fared poorly in the big urban centers. Your father Was somewhat. I don't know if he was critical specifically of camp. He he was, but he said, "I wish they'd spent more time in Metro."
3: Well, what he he said because it was actually the Seattle event that I was um, that I was with was a a, a conference. He said that he ran uh, the that he Bill Camp, Brian Camp ran his general election like it was a um, primary. And that he should have actually reached out. Because, I mean, Stacey Abrams did a great job. She reached out to everybody in the state. She traveled everywhere. Um, she went everywhere trying to, trying to appeal to all the voters. And I think that's really what Brian needs to do now is he needs And I think he's going to do that. I like to, you know, be, be you know, optimistic. I think he'll reach out to all the voters. I think he stayed with his base because he knew that he had to turn them out based on what he needed to win. But also, he, know, he knows that in the governor's mansion, you sit in Atlanta and so you have to govern the whole state, and my hope is that he will reach out and and pull together just as Governor Deal did. I think very well. I think he did a very good job pulling together different coalitions and making sure that we work together as a state.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's much question that Kemp realizes that as governor he is he is going to have to look at everyone across the state, and and I think Nathan Deal does point that that direction out to him, how you can become a consensus governor, even if you begin with a polarized base. Uh, So we'll watch how he pulls that off. But what's interesting to me about this 8 million-plus vote lead in, in terms of aggregate numbers across the country, Kevin, is that when it comes down to it, they don't mean a whole lot. That doesn't mean a whole lot as long as you have Uh, One party or the other gerrymandering districts in states across the country, congressional seats as well as legislative seats. And even in the presidential race, in looking at the electoral college and how you run a campaign around that, the aggregate vote is fascinating in terms of a general direction. But it doesn't tell you who's going to win in 2020 in various races.
2: Right. Well, that's actually my question I wanted to ask our political scientists. I mean, can Republicans will control... The The district drawing process in Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can they gerrymander their way out of what is the obvious problem?
4: So, OK, so one political scientists don't all agree about whether or not gerrymandering <laughs> is the cause of the problem. OK. Um, and so we're still arguing about that. Then I think there is this big <laughs> wild card about litigation. Um, And so, you know, there's a North Carolina case. We've got to see how far that goes about whether or not partisan districting, you know, can actually, you know, will it ever be ruled unconstitutional. Um, But in terms of like whether or not they can put their thumb on the on, on, you know, on the on the dial. um, Yeah, but you can. Perpetual. If you got to perpetually do this in order to remain relevant, like eventually you're just going to run out of spaces where you can effectively. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. All
1: right, Jackie, you're going to get one of the last words in this conversation today.
4: So so this Uh, is my this is my personal
3: history with with the whole gerrymandering. I think you're it was a very thoughtful answer. But so in after the 1990 census, um, the Democrat-controlled legislature in Georgia tried to gerrymander my father, out of his district.
4: No, no way.
3: Hard to imagine.
4: Uh, and what happened,
3: they only had one Republican at the time. What happened is they ended up with, with many more Republicans and many more districts when it was all done, and my dad had moved up to the new 6th District, um, which was then now northern, right, at, versus the old rural down the down to, you know Griffin and, and lower left. So my point is you got to be careful, right? So if you have mm-hmm. one thing, you try to squirrel with it and make sure it's exactly what you want there. That's right. Other things happen. but So I do think in the long term you got to think about, and, and I really do think, For a party to be successful, they have to appeal or try to appeal to almost everybody.
1: I think that's a wonderful thing to say, because I will never forget the glee that Thomas B. Murphy, Speaker of the House, (laughs) and Democrats all felt when they passed the new lines and then— how they, uh, their crestfallen response when your dad and other Republicans rammed that redistricting down their throats, real quick. Well, I mean, the thing that
4: they weren't taking into account in like that post 90 redistricting was, racial redistricting was actually still constitutional at the time. And so when they created those majority black districts that, you know, get you more than the fifth district now, right, they didn't realize what they were doing. We, you know, are more cognizant of that and that's also illegal now. They were
1: hoisted on their own own petard. They were. I, I,
2: yeah.
1: All right. We are completely <laughs> out of time uh, for today's show. Uh, thank you so much, uh, all of you, for being here. Very quick note, uh, the Kemp Transition team is listening to the show today, and they heard our conversation about the lawsuit, and they say this. This week, Governor-Elect Brian Kemp is meeting with public safety and economic development leaders focused on building a safe and prosperous future for Georgia families, presumably that is their response. To the federal suit that the Abrams forces have put into effect and I appreciate them sending that uh, right here to the show so we can get on the air. That's it. We're out of time today. We'll be back here at two o'clock with another Political Rewind tomorrow. See you then.